I'm BG's and I'm Broadway. Last 50 years. I was stalking hoes in the center of town. Check it out. Welcome to Tales of Times Square, the tapes. I'm Josh Allen Friedman. strippers in Times Square loved Uncle Lou. A stretch limo driver by day, Lou provided Raven De La Croix, his close friend and number one girl, free passage to her shows. A simple man with sad eyes who does good deeds with no strings attached, like a good uncle to all these strippers who've known bad ones. He chauffeurs some of them, but he never comes on to them. He kept a scrapbook, a private shrine of Polaroids of himself with naked strippers. Uncle Lou's scrapbook. He's the last fan standing to those burlesque queens, remaining loyal decades after their careers came to an end and every other fan disappeared. Uncle Lou is loyal to me also. He was my last mole on 42nd Street. That's an underground source of info. He would phone me after I moved to Texas in 1987 with news from old 42nd Street. I told him, Lou, I left the beat. I live in Dallas. But he'd call anyway. He was 51 in 1984 when we sat down at Bernard's, the stripper hangout bar across from the Melody in Times Square, to pour over his scrapbook. As an example of protocol, he explains how he met American Indian porn princess Hayapesha Lee, whom he considers a little Raven de la Croix. Hayapesha, these, oh, this, these are incredible. Now, Hayapesha first appeared in New York. Well, she had uh, two appearances in New York. The, the first in conjunction Thank you. with her movie, uh, <clears throat> plea, but opening night was really a madhouse because everybody from the corner of the street was there, yeah. practically. Uh, she uh, did a live show between, I think, four times a day. You know, it's very hard to meet these girls for the first time if you just a spectator, because they don't know who you are. Yeah. You know? So the first time, I just uh, was like, uh, you know, a paying customer that came in there, and I posed, and I posed for uh, this picture here. What does it say? Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. See you, MM. <clears throat> All right. Now, then I came. I came back to the theater a, cu a couple days later, because she she was here for about ten days or two weeks. <clears throat> came back to the theater a second time, and I brought her a gift. It was a little bottle of perfume I had that uh, yeah. had a bottle that was shaped like the Eiffel Tower. And it was kind of an unusual type gift and, you know, she appreciated it. Then I, then I came back a third time. Now she remembered me because I bought her the perfume the second time. That's when she posed for this picture and these, and these two here. <clears throat> and then I... Is she really her, kissing you there with her tongue? Yeah, right. Jesus Christ. Then I uh, bought her a uh, floating heart from Tiffany's. You know, with a little... You got a good change. feel there, too. Yeah. Jesus. Well, the third time, this is this is when she appeared in Show World uh, in March. She gave me her, 
her address, and I wrote her. I wrote her a letter when she appeared here in New York, and then uh, she wrote back to me from uh, Indianapolis. You know, she has a post office. You made my stay box. in New York wonderful. Yeah. So then I got to know her, you know, because we kept correspondence. This was the first post, and uh, she put her she put her her hand over here. Her. Since she since she took put her hand the initiative, I felt it was okay for me. To put your hand on her crotch back. Yeah. Except she's naked. Anyway, she's fat. She's incredible. Man. Well, I try to make her feel at home here, you know, because uh, she's uh, very lovely and uh, sweet. We'll proceed to flip through the pages fast right now to give you an example of some of the hundreds of Polaroids that he has. Keep in mind, in today's highly charged climate of sexual harassment, during the early 1980s, some of the leading porn starlets, as we have here, were still advocates for sexual liberation against oppression. It was the tail end of the sexual revolution. If you believe in a woman's choice of free will, they chose their careers and reveled in the attention. Posing for Polaroids generated hundreds in cash at live appearances. Marilyn Chambers, is. this is from when? This is when she, she appeared, uh, she hadn't appeared in a movie in quite a while. And a few years ago, she opened up in a movie called uh, Insatiable, which appeared at the Pussycat yep. Theater. And uh, she was giving free autographed pictures in conjunction with the it opening says, of the Lou, film. says, Lou, love and all my uh, hot, I, wet licks. Li licks. Licks. Is Seika? Oh, she appeared in a movie there at the uh, World Theater, which, which, which now has a format of uh, straight films, you know. Mm -hmm. Dynamite. This, this was taken on the first appearance at the uh, Melody. She appeared at the Melody uh, two or three times, I don't recall. Lou, much love and lust always, Sacred. Jesus Christ, Desiree. Desiree Cousteau, uh, yeah, this is uh, the first or second time she appeared at the Melody, and this was taken uh, about four years ago. You can see I had a mustache in those days. Yeah. Know. Her husband uh, took these pictures into Melody. Lou was like an old man, even when he was young. He wound up donating half his income as a chauffeur to ex-strippers with kids when they got older. Like other old dukes at the Melody Burlesque, and he was a young pup at 51, Uncle Lou played the horses at Belmont Racetrack and Aqueduct. His scrapbook is legend amongst these old boys. The photos are protected behind plastic sheets on the pages to keep grubby hands off. You don't have to peel these off. Okay. That's the advantage of this book is you can lift it up yeah. and uh, you know, uh, put it right back. Yeah, you get the, I've seen these in the five and dime kind of stores. And people can put their fingers on them and not spoil the picture. You don't want anyone yeah, to right. actually yeah, right, yeah, right. And here's more of Seika. Did you pay five dollars for each shot? Well, at that Maybe. time I think it was three. It was three and then it went up, it went up to four. But that, that was early uh, at the time when they were taking the Polaroids in the lobby in conjunction with their appearance. And there's Seika sitting on your lap in the Melody in front of the no admittance mm -hmm. door. And then you've got your hands around her waist and then carrying her like Clark Gable. And here's Constance Money. Yeah, she, uh, Lou, hope you, hope you like it lots, lots of love. She, uh, she appeared a money. picture called, uh, A Taste of Money, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, this was her first appearance since Misty Beethoven. Right, and she put her own lipstick there. She put her lipstick there, right. Just, that's, a, that's a good yeah. touch. Yeah. That's a good touch. And that's this is... Anna Ventura. To Lou, best of everything and all my love, Anna Ventura. She appeared in a, uh, in a picture uh, called uh, 
We Girls. This is Kelly Nichols. And Love and lust to a fan who cares. Actually, it's a funny thing, you know, but uh, I, I worked for a limousine service that uh, one of our accounts is uh, Platinum Pictures, Chuck Denson. Mm -hmm. And after she signed this, was maybe six months after she signed this, I happened to get the, I mean, it was just strictly, you know, fate. I mean, I didn't, uh, yeah, you didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know. They uh, they gave me a trip ticket, you know, uh, Platinum Pictures. Mm -hmm. Pick up Kelly Nichols, and then I picked up Chuck Benson, mm -hmm. and then I picked up uh, the publisher of High Society, Carl Ruderman, Gloria, Gloria Gloria Leonard, Leonard, and took him down to the uh, <clears throat> Erotic Awards. That was uh, in '83. They had him at the uh, at the Riverboat in the Empire State Building. Yeah, <laughs> but it was just a matter of faith that it worked out that way. I mean, you know. I remember that. She doesn't see too well. She has a problem with uh, seeing, you know. Uh, apparently, you know, I don't know if she's far-sighted or near-sighted. So when I asked her if she remembered me, you know, of course, you know, well, I mean, I didn't expect it to because a lot of people stopped in the lobby and asked for pictures. <coughs> Kalu, Love in that Haven, 53082. Uh, she was in the lobby at the Pussy uh, Cat for approximately uh, five days or a week. <coughs> So I stopped over a few times and uh, spoke with her, and she's very intelligent and personable. Oh yeah, and uh, in fact, I understand. Very that, personable. You know, yeah, yeah. She, uh, you know, uh, you know, she did go to college. I don't know if she graduated, but uh, she was very good in physics. Annette Haven was very good in physics. So was Golden Age movie star Hedy Lamarr, whom Annette resembled. Hedy Lamar invented a radio guidance system for Allied forces in World War II so that torpedoes couldn't be jammed, a technology which became the basis for Bluetooth devices today. But Annette Haven just stuck to fellatio. And here's, her handwriting is the most legible and the yeah, nicest yeah, of yeah, all. Yeah, her script, yeah. it looks like 17th century yeah. kind of. Anyway, then, uh, you know, she got on my... I, I, I also sent her a letter. I, I usually write these girls a letter because, you know, uh, it's a little bit hard some sometimes to uh, to chat with them because what happens you know you get uh, four or five guys all around there and everyone's yeah. trying to say something and you can't really have a one-to-one uh, -one conversation of any extent so I find if I write them a personal note and kind of express my sentiments uh, and she didn't personally respond you know but I didn't expect it to you know. so you didn't get a personal response no. you don't really know her I don't really know her that well no. would you like to Oh, well, actually, I'm already occupied with enough uh, people. Enough. That I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not looking to really uh, take on any more. Hey, Lou, you're a great... You're a great lover. You're a great lover, Juliet Anderson. But uh, we never made the big scene, you know, but uh, she just implies that we... That we guessed, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they more or less uh, figured that you would be a great lover. More or less the vibes they get from you. Uh, yeah. they, well, if, no, if they, they think you will be, they uh, kind of... Uh, put down what they uh, think, what they anticipate uh, might happen if they did get involved with you? Here we have Annie. Yeah, Annie Sprinkle. That was a, she appeared at the show world. Yeah. And, um, Here you are cupping her, her bazooms with a lecherous smile. This is the only one where you look lecherous. Well, uh, picture. Just came out that way, I mean. It came out that way, yeah. That's usually not my style, you know. But it's like uh, in a day glow pink. Yeah. But yeah, right. By the cigarette machine. But Annie it. kind of encourages that type of response. If ever they were to produce a Broadway musical about a porn star, I always thought Annie Sprinkle should be the one. They did one on Gypsy, so why not her? They could call it Annie. 
Well, after a while, you know, uh, you get a certain degree of expertise in interpreting, uh, you know, uh, body language and so on and other things, you know, and you feel, you know, uh, what you can do and what you can't do, you know. So, I mean, I, I don't yeah. try to, you know, do anything that would be objectionable to them, you know. Yeah. Objectionable, I think. <clears throat> and there's Sharon Mitchell. Sharon Mitchell, yeah. She looked like she really shaved her yeah, right. little, like, mohawk cubic hairdo there. Well, some of the Here's girls. my favorite, uh, Veronica. My favorite. Some of these girls uh, shave their vaginas because uh, when they uh, put on a uh, g-string, if the uh, thing overflows on the side, you know, it doesn't look too good. So they kind of uh, shave it off yeah. on the side so that the g-string looks. Showgirl uh, etiquette. You know, covers it covers everything, you know, and there's nothing. You know. Among all the strippers that make up Uncle Lou's scrapbook, Raven De La Croix remains his number one girl. Raven and I kind of have a relationship where we feel we're family, you know, and yeah. it's more than just a friendship, you know. I mean, I, uh, she introduced me to her mother and uh, <clears throat> her brothers and sisters. They invite me up for Christmas for dinner and so on. She's not the type of girl that's uh, an opportunist. Uh, she doesn't sleep around in Hollywood to get jobs. She doesn't look for handouts. Uh, she has a lot of self-esteem. Self-esteem. This is a hard-earned characteristic that Uncle Lou keeps coming back to. But, you know, I find that most, most of the, the girls, uh, strippers and porno stars, you know, have more or less, uh, you know, uh, had a problem with their fathers, you know, or uh, stepfathers, or in some cases, uh, sexual, you know, in some cases, just a communication problem, in some cases, cases there's an emotional problem there. Perhaps in some way I trigger a positive response because I don't come on to these girls, uh, you know, uh, in a sexual or in a pursuit type of a way. I find that most of these girls, uh, you know, uh, have been innocent victims of adversity broken by a fate beyond their control. And uh, this brings back my childhood. Uh, I lost my parents, you know, at, you know, at an early age. And I grew up in this orphanage uh, from the age of 8 to 18. And what happened to your parents when you were 8? Well, uh, <clears throat> they perished in the Holocaust. Innocent victims of adversity, broken by a fate beyond their control. Lou escaped the Holocaust in 1939 and made it to America. What he witnessed as a six-year-old boy in Poland was unspeakable, as the Nazis murdered his parents. He didn't want this printed in the interview, didn't tell anyone, didn't want sympathy. He entered the Hebrew National Orphanage in Yonkers, New York. It had been run like an antiquated 19th century Dickensian orphanage, with detention and beatings. But a new director came in before Lou arrived and modernized everything. Overcrowded corridors were replaced with dorms, five boys per room. The new director introduced vocational training like radio electronics and woodcrafting. Lou had a real childhood there. The crux of the situation is this, is that we as young kids were also innocent victims of adversity. Fortunately, we had people that cared about us, that, you know, raised funds, that were able to, uh, you know, uh, help us establish our self-esteem. Yeah. And uh, 
give us a, po a positive outlook on life. Uh, and this is the problem that these girls are encountered with also. You see, you know, they've more or less uh, been uh, either abused, molested, or uh, they've been put down, you see. At so, an early age. At an early age. And consequently, uh, you know, uh, it's been hard for them to get out of that uh, syndrome that way. You see? So I can, perhaps that's the reason that they respond to me, you know, because I can see in my response to them, I mean, I treat them with dignity and respect. And the difference between me and some of the other guys is that uh, I don't look at them for what they are, but for what they can be. Well, the point is this. People fall into three broad categories. Those that make things happen, those that watch things happen, and those that wonder what happened. The wonder what happened. The wonder what happened, right. Okay, the last category I'm not concerned with. Some of these girls that are in the middle category that I can get to the first category are the ones that I basically get myself involved with. You know, uh, I, I don't get myself involved with a girl that I don't feel I can help or do anything with. This. You're more interested in a girl who is... Who has potential but hasn't been able to... Some other do, yeah, right. do something else than... Well, perhaps have been known to turn these girls out. I try to turn girls in. Mardi Gras was the first public lap dancing custom that began at the Melody Burlesque in the 1970s. But being Times Square, it evolved into dollar a feel, dollar a lick, dollar a suck, the kitchen sink and beyond. You know, uh, some of these girls, uh, you know, when they, uh, well, I'm not talking about straight shows, but when they do the Mardi Gras, it really uh, turns their heads upside down or yeah, that's inside out. And something that they can't handle, and they, and they either have to smoke a joint or get drunk or do something, you know, just to go out on, and do the Mardi Gras. I mean, it really bugs them because uh, apparently there's a conflict there. Uh, there's nobody doing Mardi Gras who grew up saying, "Oh boy, someday yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to grow up to be a yeah, yeah, right. Mardi Gras girl." Right, you know, right, right. I don't want to be a nurse or an yeah, astronaut. You know, uh, as the self-image starts to improve, it creates more of a conflict when they do the money drop. It's some heavy shit to go yeah, through. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess in a way I've been a surrogate father or an uncle, and uh, basically that's my purpose, uh, you know, my function. The director of the Hebrew National Orphanage, no relation to the hot dog company, prepared Lou to go out in the world. He got a college degree in geology. Then he served two years in the Army from 1955 to 1957. But hundreds of geologists were laid off by the early 60s, so Uncle Lou began driving limousines as a full-time chauffeur in 1965. Now, dear listener, what you are about to hear has never been publicly revealed before. I was absolutely stunned when I learned this recently. Thirty-five years after I first met Uncle Lou, and wrote his chapter in Tales of Times Square, we were both at Angelo's Restaurant on Mulberry Street. A friend we were sitting with revealed Lou's darkest secret. Uncle Lou had driven John and Yoko six or seven times, but the last time he drove them was on December 8, 1980, at about 10.30 in the evening. to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, 
outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City. The most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles. Shot twice in the back. They were going home uh, to where they lived, you know, the Dakota, on 72nd Street and uh, Central Park West. They get out of the car when I, uh, when I got there, and then uh, I made a U-turn, maybe 20, 20 minutes later, the dispatcher asked me about, uh, about the Lennons, you know, and I told him I uh, dropped them off. So he says, well, I, I, I know it was a Monday night, because uh, on Monday night, uh, there's a football game, and, and they and they announced that uh, Howard was, Cosell. Yeah, Howard Cosell. He cooking such groovy spaghetti. What a shame every Jane had a maid at the party. What a shame every Jane, what a shame every Jane had a maid at the party. Esquire limousines had about 25 chauffeurs. The Lennons had an account. Uncle Lou would wait outside the record plant on 44th Street off Times Square. When I questioned him more pointedly, this is what Lou told me. They'd record at oddball hours, all night or half the night. You'd be sitting there two or three hours waiting for him. He was talking to Yoko in the back of the car, usually about what they were recording. No gossip or anything. It was around 11, just another job. I picked them up. Then you go up 8th Avenue to Central Park West, take a left on 72nd, you drop them off and they get out. I didn't even open the door, he says. That's all right, he gets the door himself. I made a U-turn on 72nd Street and went south on Central Park West to Midtown. I was thinking of the next call. The dispatcher gave me a pickup at the Hilton. As I'm heading toward the Hilton, the dispatcher called. Did you drop off Lennon? Yeah, I said. Well, he got shot. Howard Cosell just said on Monday Night Football. When Lou got back to the garage, some chauffeur yelled, Hey, Lou, you're going to be famous. I don't want to be famous, Lou said. The dispatches, they got big mouths telling everybody at the garage. NYP detectives interviewed Lou. An assistant DA asked him to recall the events, showed Lou diagrams. He turned down a magazine that offered a lot of money for an interview. I didn't want people hounding me for the rest of my life. I didn't want people pointing a finger. Hey, see that guy over there? The night it happened, he simply went to bed and figured he'd read about it in the morning. Lou looked at me and shrugged. He was just another account. Oh, I just uh, I dropped him off, and that was the end of it, you know, as far as I knew. You know. I uh, kind of felt uh, bad, you know, for Lennon, but the... But the, but the point was, uh, I don't want to feel that uh, it was anything that uh, I was involved in, in the sense that uh, I was responsible for anything, because I wasn't. You know? Why didn't you ever tell me, Lou? He said he never wanted anyone to know. In that case... I only had one question. How much did he tip? Oh, the gratuity was 20%, automatically on the bill. A few years later, Uncle Lou drove McCartney out to the Hamptons. Next to my own father, John Lennon was the most important figure in my entire life since I was eight years old. I have never accepted what happened to this day.
Who coined the phrase, Uncle Luke? Well, actually, it happened uh, with a girl called Desiree Duswan. And the way it got coined was uh, I'd call her at home occasionally, you know, and this fellow was living with her. So when I called and he answered the phone, it wouldn't look too good, you know. So uh, she says, oh, that's my Uncle Luke. <laughs> so that way, uh, you know, uh, he put me through all the time. I would never have a problem. If you wanted Uncle Lou's advice on how to behave with beautiful women, he'd say, never come on like gangbusters. And when I asked how often he, in his words, made the big scene, he answered like this. And how often does that happen? Every now and then? Well, I mean, with strippers. Let me put it this way. A gentleman never tells. <laughs> <laughs> This is Josh Allen Friedman with another episode of Tales of Times Square, The Tapes. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for photos and extras. We'll see you next week on Old Broadway.